Well, we uh, have been kind of on a, a pause mode in Revelation as we came to chapter 4 and we read about how where it says, John, after Jesus gave those seven messages to the seven churches, it says, and after these things I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me which said, come up here. We've paused here because uh, I do believe this is a picture of what will happen to the church after God's program for the church is complete as the church will be raptured. And so we've taken some time to study that doctrine of the rapture. And in that study, we have learned that the rapture of the church is an event where Jesus descends to the clouds and shouts come up here. Dead believers are resurrected first. Living believers are caught up to the clouds and transformed into our new bodies along the way. And then Jesus takes all believers to heaven to be with him forever. And we learned last week that looking forward to this event is very important, you know, because it purifies us. When we have this blessed hope in our hearts, it reminds us to reject behavior that God hates and to, it keeps us focused on building Christ's kingdom instead of going along with society's desire to create our own kingdom. So it does leave, however, one remaining question that we haven't addressed yet, which is when is this amazing event going to take place and what signs let us know it's near? So when is the rapture? And I have to warn you ahead of time, hope your digits are ready because we'll be moving to a lot of different scriptures today uh, instead of just staying in one spot like we kind of normally do. So uh, we'll be visiting a lot of scriptures. There'll be some that I'll just be reading. Uh, I want to encourage you if you want to go back and and look them up or if you miss a scripture, you can go to our website and you can... um, you can see every scripture that I use today, uh, at least that I plan to use, and then um, also you can look it on the app. It should be there as well. So, all right? Now, when is the rapture? Well, there are many variations on what people believe about the timing of the rapture, but all of those variations can be classified under four positions. Uh, the titles for these positions are given based on uh, how and when the rapture takes place in light of the seven-year tribulation period. So when I give these names, you know, pre, post, mid, whatever, the idea is they all are giving you a timing based on when it happens in light of the seven-year tribulation period. So the, the first of the four positions is the partial tribulation rapture position. Now, this usually locates the timing of the rapture before the start of the tribulation period, but it teaches that only faithful believers who are actively looking for Jesus experience that rescue. Um, If you're not looking for Jesus, or if you're not a faithful believer, if you're a struggling believer, then you will be left behind and experience all the horrors of the seven-year tribulation period. The second position is the mid-tribulation rapture position. And this divides the, rap- the tribulation into two halves. Christians uh, experience the first half of the tribulation period, but are raptured prior to the second half because those who hold to this position claim that the second half of the tribulation period is the only part of the tribulation where God's wrath is behind the horrible events that occur. Uh, more modernly, it, it's, in modern times, it's, it's more commonly called um, the pre-wrath tribulation position. Uh, so if you say, what's a mid-trib? I, I've not heard of that. It's because A lot of times it's called the pre-wrath position today. Um, Not always, but very often those who hold this position locate the rapture at the seventh trumpet judgment of Revelation 11.15. The third position is the post-tribulation rapture position, and this is the uh, view that the 
church will be raptured at the end of the tribulation, just before Jesus comes back to deal with the Antichrist and set up his kingdom. So, you know, it's kind of we go up, you know, and we kind of, Marriage Supper of the Lamb's kind of a drive through event, and then you, you know, come on down uh, and, and you come back with Jesus. So um, Christians, therefore, will experience all the horrors of those seven years, but they are supernaturally protected from any specific uh, acts of wrath by God, and they would determine and define that many of the acts Uh, that occurred during that time are not actually uh, acts of the wrath of God. Uh, This viewpoint definitely has the most iterations uh, because there are many that hold to this viewpoint who believe the church is Israel and therefore all the references to Israel in Revelation are a reference to the church. Um, uh, Some believe that God still has separate plans for Israel and the church and therefore they run together. Uh, Some believe it's a literal seven years uh, while others believe that the events of Revelation, uh, some of them have already taken place over time. It's not a literal seven years. So the post-tribulation rapture position has lots of different iterations to it, definitely the most uh, different iterations. The fourth uh, position is the pre-tribulation rapture position, and that is the viewpoint that all Christians will be raptured at some point prior to the start of the tribulation, therefore escaping all of the events that will occur during the tribulation period. Now, that doesn't mean that the tribulation starts right after the rapture. It doesn't necessarily mean that at all. Uh, It just means that the church escapes all of the events of those seven years. So uh, which one of the four is correct? Well, the first thing I do need to point out is that these positions are mutually exclusive. They can't all be right or they can't, they can't, you can't believe one and say, well, I believe the other one too. Only one of those viewpoints can be correct. However, unlike our belief in the Trinity or Jesus being the Son of God, which are essentials to Christianity, uh, we can disagree on the timing of the rapture and still you know, have fellowship and still someone could be a solid believer and disagree with me on this topic. They're wrong, but they can still disagree with me on this topic. In other words, this is not something to ever part fellowship over or even to argue about. Um, certainly loving debate and good iron sharpening iron is always fine. I love it when someone hears me teach something and they say, hey, Pastor Will, you know, I heard you say this today, but what about that way the scripture says here? I love it when someone comes to me and then I got to go dig in and I got to find out, hey, do I need to change or, or am I not understanding things correctly? You know, I love that. You know, that we need those things. We need to have good conversations with one another, but certainly we should never uh, be nasty or argue or name call or part fellowship uh, if we differ on these viewpoints. Now, which one is correct? Well, Calvary Chapel, Orlando, and I don't know if it's still this way today. I know with uh, the part of Calvary Chapel I'm a part of, this is a requirement to be a Calvary Chapel. We believe that the rapture will occur prior to the tribulation. That's what we believe. And my goal this morning is to give you three reasons why. Um, there are a lot of other reasons why. Um, the thing is, we don't have enough time this morning to go into everything. Um, you know, I could probably spend about 12 weeks on the topic, uh, pointing out the problems with the other viewpoints and all the reasons why I and our church hold to that viewpoint, uh, but I will share some of the, my major, major problems with these other positions this morning, but again, we don't have the time to examine them in detail in one study. If you'd like to learn more about that, uh, come see me afterwards and I can give you some resources, but in addition, um, we're going to try to make some other resources available to you. Um, Justin's put some uh, messages online that I taught years ago on this topic that are more detailed. Um, the problem is the quality, the sound quality is not great. So, uh, you know, forgive that. But if you want to learn more, you can listen to those or I can come and see me and I'll give you some books you can read that I think will be uh, very educational for you. 
So what are the three reasons that we hold to the pre-tribulation rapture position? Well, reason number one is that early Christians assumed the rapture would occur in their lifetime. They didn't assume this because of any special events that occurred in their lifetime. They assumed this because they were taught that Jesus could come at any moment. It's what they were all taught. You know, it's not like Peter went out and, you know, and he, he woke up in the morning, got his coffee, you know, turned on his iPhone and went to the, you know, uh, Jerusalem Times and, and he saw, oh, there's a blood moon today. Jesus must be coming back soon. Or, oh, this happened. Jesus must be coming back soon. And, and I'm not bringing that up to mock anyone. I'm bringing that up because the idea is that there was no event that they looked at to say, well, Jesus could be coming back in our time. They assumed this because they were taught that Jesus could come at any moment, that there was no event, that nothing had to happen for Jesus to come back and get his bride. So look with me at the book of James, just a few books left of the book of Revelation. James chapter 5, and then we're going to look at 1 Peter 4, which is right after the book of James. And we're going to see examples of this teaching, that Jesus could come back at any moment, that there was no event that needed to occur, no, no happening, nothing needed to happen for the rapture to occur. In James chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, we'll be looking at here. James is writing to Christians who are being persecuted. Their lives are very difficult, and he's encouraging them to hang in there, not just to hang in there, but to walk obediently with Jesus. And so in James 5, 7, he says, therefore, be patient, brothers, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husband, the the husbandman, the farmer, he waits for the precious fruit of the earth, and he has long patience for it until he receives the early and the latter rain. He doesn't go and harvest everything he's got, you know, when the rains haven't completed. He waits until the very end so he can get the most out of it. He's patient. And so in light of that, he says, you also be patient and establish your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord draws nigh. Don't grudge against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. For behold, the judge stands before the door. That phrase that the coming of the Lord draws nigh, the phrase draws nigh, it's in the perfect tense, which means an event that has already occurred that has lasting circumstances permanently into the future. In other words, the nearness of the Lord is something that's already happened. Everything that needed to happen for Jesus' return to be near has already happened. His return has already come close. We have already approached the time when it can happen at any moment. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Peter echoes these thoughts. He tells his audience, who are, again, are persecuted Christians who are struggling, and he tells them, hang in there, stay faithful, keep obeying the Lord, keep walking with the Lord. Verse 7 of 1 Peter 4, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be ye sober and watch unto prayer. At hand is the same exact word that James used for draws nigh. And it's also in the perfect tense. It has already come. The end of all things has already come. We're already in it. When Paul described the rapture, we, we studied 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where we studied the rapture and, and what it is and what it looks like. Well, when Paul described the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, he says this, we, not they, but we which are alive and remain, right now, you Thessalonians, me, Paul, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then, 
Those words, he says, were intended to comfort, to be a comforting hope to those who were alive to receive that letter. It's a comforting hope to us. But it was a comforting hope to those who were living back then that Jesus could come and get them then. That can only be true if the rapture could have occurred in their lifetime. And so, even though Jesus didn't come back in their lifetime, the idea is that there are no signs that let us know the rapture is near. People say, hey, Pastor Will, and they mean well, and, and I'm not being mean or critical, but they come to me and say, Pastor Will, do you think Jesus could come back soon? This happened. And my answer is always the same, yes, because nothing needed to happen. <laughs> the answer will always be yes, because whatever needed to happen for Jesus to come back soon has already happened. There are no signs that let us know the rapture is near because it's always been near and has been near since Jesus ascended into heaven. This is known as the doctrine of the imminence of the return of Christ, that he could come back at any moment. And it's interesting because that's what Jesus told us to live for and to look for. He did not tell us to look for and live for his kingdom. And that, when I say live for, in a sense that we're living so that because we believe we're going to see it before we're raptured. He did not teach us to look for his return to set up his kingdom. Turn to Matthew 24 with me. You know, the disciples specifically asked this question, what will be the sign of your coming? And the great Olivet Discourse, that sermon that Jesus gave right before his death on, on, on the Mount of Olives, um, and when he, they asked him three questions. You know, when shall these things be? He described the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. What shall be the sign of your coming, and what shall be the end of the world? Three very important questions. And Jesus answers all three of those questions in this very long sermon. And when the disciples asked that question, what signs will mark your return? Jesus taught them, there are none. There's, there's no, no man knows when I'm going to return. There's nothing to look for. Look at Matthew 24, 36. Look at Jesus' answer here. But of that day and hour knows no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Look at Matthew 24, 42. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord does come. Look at verse 44. Therefore be you also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. Jesus made it very clear. None of us know when that time will be. There's nothing that we can look to and go, oh, it's today, it's, or oh, it's next week, you know, or it's, it's tomorrow, or it's a year from now, or seven years from now, or 50 years from now. We don't have any of those things we're looking for. We're always to be ready. Now, there is something we do know. We do know the time when Jesus will return to deal with the Antichrist and set up his kingdom, right? That's at the end of the seven-year uh, period known as the, as the tribulation. We know that. And yet, when Jesus was asked about that after his resurrection in Acts chapter 1, Jesus told the disciples it was not for them to know when God's plans for one group end and when his plans for another group start. He told them that. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples came to Jesus after he had risen from the dead, and they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom, again, the kingdom to Israel? Will you start working in the nation of Israel again? And, and, and Jesus, he says to them, it is not for you. In other words, it could be for others, but it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that God has put in his own power. What does it mean, not for you to know? The word there for know, there's two, two words in the Greek for know. One refers to like a head knowledge, like an education, like you, you can have information because it's been told to you. 
The other one is heart knowledge or experiential knowledge, something you learn by experience, something because you've gone through it. That's the word that's used here, to learn by experience or to gain knowledge by experience. It's not for you to learn by experience or to gain knowledge by experience concerning the times and the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. What does it mean, the times? It refers, the times here refers to points, various points in time that consist of certain events. God has a plan. He knows a very, he has a very specific plan, and he knows all the events that will lead up to the return of Christ. The Father has revealed all of those things to us through prophecy, you know, what those specific events will be. And we're going to study them much later in the book of Revelation. But while we have that head knowledge, we will not experience those things. We will not learn those things by our own experience. We are waiting for a different event, an event that has no particular requirements to occur. Jesus also told them that it's not for you to know the seasons that God's put in his own power. The word there, seasons, means periods of time. We studied last week about different periods of time. We learned in Hebrews chapter 1, where it says that God has spoken to different people at different time periods in different ways. That means that God has a different message and a different plan for different people in different time periods. God has a plan for the church. God has a plan for Israel. And he tells These believers who in just a few moments are going to experience Pentecost, the birth of the church, become a part of the church. He tells them it's not for you to know when God's going to start one program and end another program. That's not for you to know and experience. So God the Father surely knows when the time is that the church will end. He knows when he will tell his son to go rapture his bride. And he also knows when he will restart his plan for Israel. But we can't learn when that is by observing special events in history. We can't learn that by our own experience. Instead, we're to always be ready, always expecting his return because it can happen at any moment. Now, if that is not true and Jesus' return is not imminent, then everything I said last week about the rapture keeping us on track and about its purifying effect in our lives is meaningless. It's absolutely meaningless because we can all look and go, oh, can't come back yet. The Antichrist hasn't, you know, come onto the scene. Or, oh, can't come back yet. The first seal hasn't been broken. Can't come back yet. The sky hasn't opened up. Can't come back yet because the battle of Armageddon hasn't occurred. Whatever thought it is, if we don't believe in the imminent return of Christ, then none of those things that I taught you last week matter. They aren't true. (laughs) Now, Of course, as you know, what I taught you is true, (laughs) which is why the Scripture exhorts us over and over and over again to not slack in looking for Him, to not slack in our readiness. The Scriptures exhort us repeatedly to be ready for Jesus' return. I'm going to read a bunch of Scriptures off to you real quick, and you guys can turn to Matthew 24 if you want, because I'm going to go there afterwards, but... In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6, you know, we read it in our scripture reading where Paul tells the Thessalonians, therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Don't be like the world who has no clue what's going on. They're not looking for Christ. Don't be like them, you know? Be sober. Let us watch. In the book of Luke chapter 23, Jesus taught his disciples, you know, to watch. He says in Luke 23, verse 34, and take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your heart should be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and as a result, that day come upon you unawares. 
the day of his return. He says, listen, I don't want you to, to have your life become so focused on this life that you get weighed down by that and, and then you're not ready for my return. For as a snare, a trap, shall it come upon all those that dwell on the face of the whole earth. That's how unbelievers will experience my return. So you watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. That's Jesus' exhortation. And then, of course, Matthew chapter 24. We continue where we, we kind of, I, I shared a few verses uh, around between verses 36 and 44, but look at verse 45. Verses 45 through 51. After Jesus saying, watch, be ready, nobody knows the time. He says, well, who is that faithful servant? I'm sorry, who is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give him food in due season? Good question. Who's the one that Jesus is gonna reward when he comes back? Who's the one that is the faithful servant when he returns? He explains Blessed is that servant who experiences these blessings is that servant whom his Lord when he comes shall find so doing. So doing what? Being ready, watching, praying, being ready. That's the one who is, who's gonna experience those blessings, you know? For verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. That's the return of Christ will be a blessed thing for us and not a shameful thing or an ashamed thing. But look at verse 48. Here's the contrast. But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming, and, and now these are two separate things that become important in a moment, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him and an hour that he is not aware of and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says, listen, this is what a wise servant does. He, he looks for Jesus, he's waiting for Jesus, and when Jesus returns, it's gonna be a blessing. Now, a wicked servant, he's not looking for Jesus. And the temptation is to live for all these other things, to become weighed down by those things, as he said in Luke, to be like the world. And the problem is, is it may reveal that you're actually of the world because you'll begin to beat the, your fellow servants, beat up your fellow Christians, fellow Christians in name, You'll eat and drink with the drunken. You're going to hang out with the world. And he says, for them, when the Lord comes, it'll catch them unawares and they will end up in judgment. Now, those who hold to a partial rapture position, uh, they use these verses to say it's possible to be, be left behind if we're not faithfully looking for Jesus. But Jesus doesn't say they're left behind. He says they are judged eternally. <laughs> that's what weeping and gnashing of teeth is. That's a, that speaks of, of condemnation and, and hell. So, that's not what Jesus is saying, that there are some who are believers who get left behind. That is not th this part at all. Uh, this, the the, pre, uh, the uh, partial tribulation position ignores Paul's clear teaching in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, where he declares very clearly, I show you a mystery. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. There's no exceptions. No one is left out. If you are a believer, you will go in the rapture. And either you'll, there will be some shame that you experience because you're not ready, or you'll be blessed because you are ready. It is unbelievers in the church who will be left behind. It's not believers who are just, I, I remember I had a pastor once who taught that, you know, you know, do you think if you're in the middle of sin that Jesus is gonna take you? Yes, because I'm righteous by my faith alone. Not righteous because of anything I do. I'm not saved by my ability to repent of every little thing I've ever done. 
Jesus is not saying some believers will be left behind. What he's saying is that there will be unbelievers in the church and they will be left behind and their behavior proves it. That's why Paul exhorts us, you know, when he says don't be sleep like others do, like unbelievers do, but act like who you are. Walk worthy of your calling. And part of that is being ready for Jesus to come back. You know, the doctrine of imminence, the imminent return of Christ is one of the most important reasons I could never hold to any position that puts Christians in the tribulation period. I never could. Every variation of those positions, every variation of any position other than a pre-tribulation rapture position must teach that Jesus delays his return. They have to teach that because he can't come back until the tribulation starts. So they have to teach that. And, and I, I cannot hold to that position because Jesus said a wicked servant says that. I don't want to be a wicked servant. Now, I don't believe that the heart of every person who holds to a different position is, is wickedness is their motivation. That's not what I'm saying here. But I am telling you, Jesus' words cannot, should not be ignored. If he says that's what a wicked servant says, then any time I adopt a position, whatever it may be, that says Jesus can't come back yet, that is not a good thing, and I don't want that. I want to be a faithful servant. And part of that means looking for Jesus' return today. And if it doesn't happen today, then I adopt the same mindset the next day. And if it doesn't happen that day, I adopt the same mindset the next day, just like the early believers were taught to do. That's how we're supposed to live. So the first reason of the three that we hold to a pre-tribulation rapture position is because it is the only position that upholds the doctrine of Jesus' imminent return. The second reason that we hold to a pre-tribulation rapture position is because of the nature and the scope of the tribulation period. Turn to Isaiah 13 with me, and then after we read Isaiah 13, some verses there, we're gonna look over at Revelation 6, and we're gonna compare the two. Now, The nature of the tribulation period is it is a time of God's wrath. It is not a time of man's, you know, man's uh, instigation of these events, even though man's trying to do something. It is not a time of Satan's instigation of events, even though he's trying to execute his plan. The tribulation period is in its entirety a time of God's wrath. In Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 13, Isaiah predicts, prophesies of this end time of wrath. And he says, in, beginning in verse 6, he, this is a prophecy against Babylon, but it is a future Babylon, not the Babylon that would come and take Israel captive, Judah captive. Um, this is referring to the time of the end, to the Babylon that's referenced in Revelation 17 and 18. In verse 6, he tells them to howl, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint and every man's heart shall melt. And they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travails. And they shall be amazed one at another, shocked in horror. Because their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened and is going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. 
and I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible, of the tyrants. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. He says, there's going to be so much death, so much judgment, that finding another human being at times will be like finding gold. Therefore, verse 13, I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Is there any confusion who is instigating all these events and why? I mean, it's very clear. This is God's anger at sin. It is God's judgment upon the world. Now look at Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17. Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17. This is the sixth seal, the very beginning of the tribulation period. In verse 12, it tells us, right here at the beginning, where this is coming from. It says in verse 12, And I beheld when he, Jesus, had opened the sixth seal. He's the one who starts this. He's the one that sets it in motion. And lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell, just like uh, Isaiah said, unto the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven will split apart. That's what it says, departed as a scroll. It will split apart like a scroll when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island are moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the chief captains, the mighty men, and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Very clear. The events of the tribulation period are from the Lord. When we begin our journey through the tribulation period, starting in Revelation chapter 5, all the events are instigated by Jesus. He opens the seals and judgment comes. There is no point in the great tribulation where these events are instigated by the devil or even mankind. They may have a plan. They may even think they're in charge. But the reality is Jesus is the one opening the seals. And everyone will know that these things are coming from him. You know, today, something might happen and people might go, oh, circumstance or chance or, you know, fluctuations in, you know, ecological things or whatever. But in that day, there will be no option for that to be the case. You know, it's not like these things are going to happen and somebody's going to go, man, it's just, you know, it's a, you know, what do they call it? Uh, El Nino. It's an El Nino, man, you know. No one's going to even suggest that because every single human being is going to be able to look up into the sky and they're going to see it parted and see into heaven and know that these judgments are coming from the one who sits on the throne. God is going to make it that clear because, as we'll see later on, he has a purpose in the tribulation to give people a clear choice. Now, God certainly disciplines his kids, you and me, right? But we are never the objects of his wrath. Jesus paid the price for all of God's wrath against us, and he promised to rescue us from the time of God's wrath. 
Again, I'm going to rattle off some scriptures to you. You can look them up later. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, he commends the Thessalonians because they were looking for Christ's return to rescue them from wrath. He says that they were looking, they were waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 and 9, for God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And then in Romans 5, verses 8 and 9, he tells us this is one of the benefits of our salvation. Therefore, having been justified by faith, he starts chapter 5 by saying, here's all the benefits. And in verses 9 and 10, he gets to this benefit. Much more than being now justified by his blood. In other words, we who are already saved, we're already rescued, we are saved by his blood. He says, we shall be saved. You say, wait a second, Pastor, well, I thought I was already saved. You're right, you're already saved. But there's a future salvation, a future rescue coming. We shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, the cross rescued us from our sins, much more now being reconciled, already forgiven, already right with God. We shall be future saved by his, not death, but life. The risen Lord coming back for us to rescue us from the wrath that's to come. That's what it's talking about. We are not appointed to wrath. We are appointed to be rescued from wrath. So the nature of the tribulation shows that we cannot be there. Now, could God preserve us during his time of judgment like he did with Noah? That's the only other time we can see that the entire world experienced God's wrath. Certainly, God's almighty. He could do that. But guys, read the book of Revelation. There's no boat. There's no boat that time. There is no place to escape from God's wrath in the tribulation period, which is the other thought here, not just the nature of the tribulation, the scope of the tribulation. It affects everyone on earth. There's no boat. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, you know, he tells the Christians there, because you have kept the word of my patience, I'm going to keep you from, out of, and away from the time of temptation which shall come upon all the world to test them that dwell upon the earth. The only place that might be safe is a space station. If you are living on the earth, there is no escape from God's wrath. In Revelation 6, verse 4, we see that the second seal, war, it says he will take peace from the earth. It's not just a part of the earth or the Middle East or Southeast Asia or, or Africa or whatever. It's the entire earth. In the fourth seal, in Revelation 6, verse 8, it says that death and hell were given power to kill a fourth part of the earth. I don't know how many people are in the world right now. It's like seven or eight billion, right? That's two billion people. In one judgment, there's no place on earth that won't be affected by that. In verse 14, it explains very clearly in Revelation 6 that every mountain, every island is moved out of its place. The map's going to look different. There will be only one group of people who are protected from God's wrath during the time of the tribulation. And the Bible tells us who that group is. It's not the church. In Revelation 7, 4, it tells us they're Israelites and it tells us what tribe they're from and how many there are. That's it. 
So the nature and the scope of the tribulation period is a second reason we hold to a pre-tribulation rapture position. The third reason, and final one I'll give you this morning, is the purpose of the tribulation. God has two reasons to have the tribulation. Number one, it's to test unbelievers. We read in Revelation 3.10 that it's a time of temptation that will come upon all those who dwell upon the earth. The word there, temptation, it's probably not a, a good word. It means to put through thorough testing in order to determine the true character of something. God's first purpose for the tribulation period is to give unbelievers a clear choice, okay? They will see where this is coming from, and, and they will be able to look into heaven and go, either it's, I need to repent, I need to get right with this powerful being who doesn't want to judge me and who sent his son to die for me. The other option will be someone else who's very vocal, very visible, who will be saying, you don't need him, trust me. Come to the dark side, you know, be on my side, you know, come with me. I can stand up against this, this God, this evil God who's judging you. I can show you the way. I orga- let's organize a resistance. We can defeat him. I'll lead the way. The Antichrist. All you got to do is prove your loyalty to me by worshiping me. And evidence of that, wor- uh, of that you're worshiping me will be that you take my mark and your, you know, uh, my, your mark and your, fore- your forehand, your hand or your forehead. You know, that'll be evidence that you are loyal to me. It's going to, you're going to have to make a clear decision. There will be no one who's just kind of going, I don't know, you know. I don't know if God's real. No, there'll be none of that going on, you know. You know? Well, there's so many different views. No, there'll just be two at that point in time, either the God of heaven or the man who says he's God. That'll be it. And this will result in both the greatest revival in history. We'll learn about that when we study Revelation 7 and also the greatest atrocities in history as people are forced to pick a side. Now, guys, we don't have to make a choice. We've already made our choice, right? We've already made our decision. We've already picked our side. So this purpose cannot apply to the bride of Christ. God's second purpose for the tribulation is to restart and finish his plan for the nation of Israel. In Jeremiah 30, verse 7, when it talks about this time of God's wrath, it calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Not the time of the church's trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble. In Daniel 9, 24, when God gives Daniel that prophecy of the, 90 week, of the 70 weeks and the, seventh, the, the last seven years, the last week that has not been fulfilled, he says, these things are determined upon your people and your holy city, the Israeli people and Jerusalem. Guys, we are not Israel, all right? God's not a polygamist. He is married to Israel. We are the bride of Christ, all right? He has a special relationship with them, God the Father. We have a special relationship with God the Son. And here's the cool part. Israel may have been unfaithful to their God, and he may have even put them away at times in the past because of their unfaithfulness, but he always calls them to return to him In Jeremiah chapter 3, a beautiful passage, beautiful passage, where the Lord, verse 1, he says, they say, if a man divorce his wife and she go from him and become another man, shall he ever return to her again? Shall not the land be greatly polluted? That's what they taught back then. That's what the law of Moses taught. But I love what the Lord says. He says, but you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, says the Lord. He will be faithful to the very end. Very end. Even though they may have not been. So God's second purpose for the tribulation 
is to begin working in Israel again. That doesn't apply to us. But it will after we're gone. So the purpose of the tribulation is the third reason that we hold to a pre-tribulation rapture theory. So first off, because it's the only uh, position that holds it upholds the doctrine of imminence. Secondly, because of the nature and the scope of the tribulation period. And thirdly, because of the purpose of the tribulation period. Now, I could give many other reasons why we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And if you'd like to learn more, I recommend those teachings. Again, the quality of the recordings aren't great, but I do go into greater detail on the various rapture positions and why they aren't consistent with Scripture. And I also go over some of the other reasons I hold to a pre-tribulation rapture position. I go into more detail with these reasons I gave you this morning. Uh, So you can check those out on the website if you want to study them. But for now, this is enough. Amen? It's enough. And and it's good because it leads us right into the Lord's Supper. You know, remember when I talked about the the ceremony that happens, the covenant that Jesus has made with us? You know, that we are Jesus' bride? You know, he offered us that cup there at the Last Supper. He offered it to them. And, and, and when you received Christ, you took that cup. You said yes, you know. You said yes to the cup of wine that he offered you. And so now, those of us who have received Christ, we have, have his promise that he will return. But in addition to that, there's another side of that. We have also made a commitment to be faithful unto him until he comes, to be chaste, to be pure until he comes back, to keep ourselves to him and him only until he returns. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're reminding ourselves of both those truths, that he promised he'd come back and that we promised we'd be faithful until he did. Because just as Jesus came the first time, you know, as we're celebrating this Christmas, he will return again. He said, let not your heart be troubled in John 14, 1. <laughs> you believe in God, but then trust in me too. Let not your heart be troubled. Aren't there plenty of things that our hearts could be troubled by right now? Yeah. <laughs> I saw y'all, y'all starting to raise your hands. You're like, amen, Pastor Will. I know. Don't let your heart be troubled. Why? He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it wasn't true, I wouldn't have told you. But I go away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I will come back to take you to be where I am. Whatever you're going through right now, whatever we're going through as a society right now, we're going to be with Jesus someday, amen? So let's be faithful in the meantime, you know? So as we take the Lord's Supper, the band comes up and gets ready to play. You know, let's recommit ourselves to being faithful, to be devoted to him alone until he comes back. We love you and we thank you so much for your word which gives us this awesome promise that we have been rescued from the wrath that's coming. We thank you, Lord, that we have clear instructions. It's not confusing. When we don't have to be, you know, uh, you, know, you know, people that can have all the information of whatever's going on in the world so we don't miss any signs for your return. Lord, we just have your promise. I'm coming back. Be ready. Watch and pray. Live for me. Occupy till I come. So, Lord, we have, we have marching orders from you that are not confusing. And our desire is to obey those marching orders. So, Lord, that's our commitment to you is we're going to remember your promise this morning. Remember what you did for us when you came the first time and you sealed this covenant with us. Lord, I pray for every person this morning. If Maybe there's someone here who doesn't know you, someone listening online who doesn't know you. Lord, would you show them that you're the way, the truth, and the life? Would you remind them that no one comes to the Father but by you? It's not by our works of righteousness. It's not by being good enough. It's only by our faith in the cross. 
But Lord, your promise is if we'll humble ourselves and confess our sins, recognize we need a Savior and put all of our trust in you, that the Son of God who gave himself for us will wash away our sins and make us his child. So Lord, we love you and we surrender this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.